I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, this is Sarah Trott. Welcome back to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Esther Gallagher, and we have a special guest with us today who I'll introduce in a moment. So I want to just remind you that we have a newsletter sign up available on our website, and there are a lot of good resources and recipes and articles you can find on the site as well. And if you're interested in sponsoring the Fourth Trimester Podcast, we would very much value your contributions, and you can go to our website, and there's a link for sponsorship there, or you can go directly to patreon.com to find our sponsorship information. So our guest today is Jane Honickman. She is a Californian born and bred and she's very much grounded in West Coast mentality. She Mm -hmm. co-founded the Postpartum Education for Parents called PEP in Santa Barbara, California in 1977. She also founded the Postpartum Support International in 1987, 10 years later, to represent the self-help support groups working to prevent the negative emotional responses to childbearing. In 2015, she co-founded the Postpartum Action Institute created for individuals who are committed to confronting the stigma of mental illness and the mythology surrounding new parenthood. Her family is her supportive husband going on 50 years this July. Amazing. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. And three adult children, their spouses, eight great grandchildren and a cat. (laughs) That's very impressive. Welcome to the show, Jane. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah and Esther. Hi, Jane. I'm just thrilled to have you. Uh, I've been telling Sarah about you for a while, and um, I'm so glad that we got to circle around and do this. You founded Postpartum Education the year I had my daughter. Oh, very nice. (laughs) Who's now 38. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very, very timely, and today is actually my... Uh, youngest child's 42nd birthday. So yay, babies. Happy birthday to you. Yeah, it's very exciting. It just makes me feel really old and sorry. I can't be with her, but she just wanted to sleep in anyway. So who cares? (laughs) Right. That's the best birthday present, right? That's right. sleep. (laughs) Well, um, Jane, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your experience of new motherhood? Sure. So it's great pleasure to be able to to share and put things into perspective for all our listeners. Uh, but I want to begin by saying how brilliant your title of your podcast is, because the third trimester, fourth trimester, is like I remember saying to the obstetrician um, almost forty five years ago, saying, "You know, the hardest part is after the baby is born. This really should call this the fourth trimester." And he said, "Well, tri means three, so no, you can't do that." 
Yeah. And I remember feeling. So, yes, you can. Yes, you can. But then all these years later, you know, we're saying, yes, you can. But I remember feeling so deflated. Yeah, but this is really hard. And the, the irony part of my story is that the precursor to the son born in, in 1972 was a daughter born in 1966 um, before we were married and she was placed mm-hmm. for adoption and so mm-hmm. I never got to be the mother I always dreamed I was going to be um, because I hadn't done it in the right order which is of course you don't have sex before marriage and of course you get married before you have a baby so that really threw the um, monkey wrench uh, into my long-term plans as a woman, which of course dates me because um, I grew up, uh, my formative years were during the 50s and my, my role model of course was my mother. And without without saying any more, that's just a very, very powerful uh, and important person in one's life. Um, and the, the shame and the embarrassment and all of that is all about secret keeping. Um, in those days. And so our firstborn was never discussed. She was raised in another country. um, Mm -hmm. And we never saw her until we finally reached out and reconnected with her. And that's another story. But what happened, of course, is that we then did it, quote unquote, right and got married and then had the graduate degree and the first job and the house and okay, now let's have a baby and uh, enters the 1970s. And I was like, wait a minute, this is really tough. And I don't get why I'm now feeling like I'm being punished by um, the demands. And I, I was just clueless. We were, it has to all be in the, in the, uh, in the couple terminology yeah. of a we. But that was um, important because it's, I like to emphasize the importance of friendships around this time of transition and normalizing the fact that this is the toughest job in the world and doesn't matter where and when, um, once you've survived your pregnancy and your birth, and then you enter into this next world, um, there really is nothing that can prepare you because you don't really know what you're receiving on that other end, what kind of child you're going to have, or the circumstances and all the impacts. And the cultural message to this day is, okay, everything worked out great. Right. You've got a baby who's alive in your arms. Yeah. Right. Period. So, so then you ask, why isn't it wonderful? <laughs> and a lot of it has to do with expectations, the mythology around this, all this, this happening. And then, of course, plain old simple exhaustion, isolation. And, uh, it, it's, it's just, you're clueless. I don't care how many times you even have done it. It's always different. <laughs> And I always like this to coin the phrase, you know, postpartum may be defined by one year, but the truth is it's forever and ever <laughs> because you, you never change a, a back to being pre, um, pre-parent. Uh, even with loss, I mean, all of these things that happen, you just can't help yourself. Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning and that was in the 70s. And I, what I did with my girlfriends really was incredible. That was powerful because the organization is all volunteer based. There's no staff. There's no office. It's just all volunteer parents who uh, staff the the very first warm line. We came up with this idea of a warm line in the 70s because of um, the emphasis on child abuse and hotlines and crisis intervention. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't want it to go there. Let's, let's <laughs> Why just, do we have to wait that long? Exactly. And so that's what one of the, the things I'm most proud of is the fact that my girlfriends and I 
uh, collaboratively worked, and it's all about self-help. It's all about community-based. It's all about social support, and this is about normal adjustment to parenthood, and that's where I started from. That's just fantastic. I don't think we can overstress the feelings of existential aloneness right. that motherhood can bring, even when we're in what we think is a fairly supportive community. Mm, exactly. You know, we may have the dearest of friends, but if we're, for instance, the first of our cohort to have the baby, yep. our friends group is clueless. Yeah, and it's about walking in the walk and then not comparing yourself too too much because everybody's walk is different. And then it's not just you, you are a couple, there's partners involved, and then there's, of course, you're surrounded by your heritage, your culture, and your DNA. And I, again, people, people just in general, we're just like, oh, it doesn't matter where I came from. It's going to be fine moving forward. Well, it does matter <laughs> very, very much. And people um, ignore that we actually being given a gift to understand ourselves better if we understood our own family's past, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. My family is primarily Irish. And there are areas of Ireland that have some of the demographically, some of the highest rates of depression in the world. Not just, you know, in Ireland or Europe or in the world. My grandmother never talked about depression. She had six kids. My mother went back east to have me and was subjected to twilight sleep and then had probably what was a short-lived psychotic break. My mom had gorgeous pregnancies, easy pregnancies, easy births, and then got pregnant rapidly. There are four kids in five years. And then at baby five, went into a downhill spiral. I think the only thing protecting her from postpartum depression was pregnancy Mm -hmm. for those years. Well, I didn't have that protection. I didn't get pregnant right away and didn't have conversations with my family about or knew to talk about depression. I think my dad also has depression. So you know, just the history of depression right? <laughs> unlinked from childbearing would have been handy. <laughs> yeah, it's critical. People need to understand that. Number one yeah. is your, your DNA and, and vulnerability to other diseases as well. But, mm-hmm. but what we know now about mental illness is that the very first thing we look into is our past and then our personal. So it's family history and personal history. Well, thank you for sharing that. So there's three things I want everybody to hear. There's one is plain ignorance because people don't know something. And then denial that maybe what you've learned, it's not applicable to you and it doesn't matter what you just heard or learned. And, and then the, the power of just not talking. Um, and when you have depression, the gene shuts you down. And so people just say, well, just speak up and talk about it and let me know how you're feeling. It's like, well, you don't quite understand. You're not capable. Um, It's a very powerful, sad thing. Um, And then the the family history for me was that, again, I was raised in the 50s and we certainly didn't talk about mental illness. And my father was bipolar. Um, And I was just, Mm. I just kept, you know, 
happy little girl and I didn't ever understand and they always protected me from why daddy went away and why he was acting in kind of strange ways Uh, but you know it came and went and you just didn't deal I mean you Mm -hmm. on the other hand you did deal by ignoring it and that's back to Mm -hmm. denial and ignorance Um, so then when I got pregnant unexpectedly and then kept that secret um, these things are traumas and people forget how even this, okay, I'm better now, um, I can move on. The truth is the brain never forgets anything, anything. It's buried, but it does come back to you. And it's that's why talk therapy is so important. Um, that's why medication works, because the brain is um, ripe for, you know, being hurt and scarred and then healed again and then moving on but then we do tend to ignore that and then culture i mean it definitely is about um trying to please other people uh, making sure you do it quote unquote right and mm. it need to be correct and you need to be wonderful and you need to do it all by yourself uh, so that was that was the biggest problem is isolation the cultural piece for me and my generation was that we moved away from family um, and we did not have anybody to to surround us um, with any kind of cushion, um, but friendship. And then the friendship is like, okay, but how do I accept that? And I think that's another big missing piece of this is that learning to accept that this is difficult. You need help. You can't do it alone. Has that changed at all? I would like to say it has, but I know that for the most part in America, I think probably overwhelming majority of women are still experiencing similar circumstance. I would Mm -hmm. say there might be slightly less pressure to do things quote unquote correctly or the right way. Mm -hmm. I think that some of that 1950s, 60s mentality has dissipated, but that's not true for all parts of the United States or all cross sections of the culture. Yeah. And I think when we live on the West coast, as Jane sort of alluded to earlier, that we have the opportunity to be unusually well-resourced. But I have to say, growing up in rural California, I don't know that things have radically changed. They have changed for the better. My mom was lucky enough to have recourse to something called family services mm-hmm. way back in the day, which was... um access to psychotherapy for low-income people. And it, and she says to this day, it saved her life. Good. I think mostly the way it saved her was it turned her in the direction of her intellect, going back to school to cultivate, a, you know, her intellect and a career. It was very feminist in that sense. That's right. I, I want to you know. pick up on that because uh, mm-hmm. my generation in, in the United States was definitely, we were the second wave feminists and we were just determined to change everything. And we really <laughs> have changed everything. And, mm-hmm. you know, speaking to the young women and couples who are listening to this is that um, you have no idea how hard we work to make things so much better than they are, than they mm-hmm. were. Um, I think that's underappreciated. Um, and then on the other hand, as a feminist and as a woman who was determined to um, sort of take back my body and take back our life and move on and do all this social action and be agents of change, all these great things that we successfully have done. I think that one of the mistakes we've made as women is to leave out the men. 
Mm. And I, uh, my husband was one of the first of the, the uh, Lamaze movement that allowed mm-hmm. uh, the men even into the delivery room. And this is the 70s in, in California. And uh, yeah. it was a, such a big deal. And then the second, you know, three years later, we were allowed to tape record. And so it's exactly 42 years ago today that we tape recorded um, the birth of our our daughter. And I mean, it's the... the I remember saying it, I don't remember saying it, but it's on a recording. Is she the right color? And it turned out <laughs> she wasn't, and she was very jaundiced. And that was another example of a, you don't know what you're going to get. And this right. this baby had severe jaundice, and we, you know, had all sorts of trauma around that. And then in, in terms of my own past trauma, here's my little girl. I'm replacing the little girl I had to give away for, through adoption, and this little girl might die. And then I just spun oh. down because I thought I had, you know, been p- being punished by God that that now I'm going to lose the daughter I, I gave away and how, oh, the guilt was just unbelievably mm-hmm. difficult. I mean, obviously. I she- should imagine it, it really triggered grief yeah. that you had previously had to hide. And still, I mean, yeah. it took me, this is the other piece of the, the, my journey is that you think that you can just move on without thinking about the past and it, it, it just doesn't work. And it took me so many more decades to finally get the help I needed. And one of the reasons I got so involved in this field is because it was my therapy. And it was mm-hmm. very, very therapeutic um, to be active and, and and making lives at least a little bit better, being whatever way I could be proactive in, in um, assisting families. And again, you know, fourth trimester and onward, that's important. So much of the grief we carry forward into parenthood seems disconnected, right? And yet it isn't. It's integral. And for the woman who's having the biological change, um, and we leave out the the man and the sperm, he is equally, it's absolutely Mm. equal. Or it could be another woman. I mean, the the reality is it could be, you know, all sorts of configurations of family designs. It doesn't matter. It does not happen in the test tube and it's not alone you don't raise the child alone and no and the right. bubble children are even not raised alone there's an outside world so it's really something we tend to forget and so whatever baggage or delightful uh packaging you get from either side you come together and you look at each other as oh my gosh we're now going to raise this child or maybe multiples together well, we haven't even talked about how were we raised and do we want to do it the way we were raised or not? And is, like, is it ideal? And ooh, where are those people anyway? Are they surrounding us with love and too many casseroles? Or, you know, have they ignored us completely? I mean, it's, yeah. it's something we just can't prepare for. And then you don't know how the, of course, now I'm the many generations away and my girlfriends are, we're, we're grandparents. And the first advice you give to a, um, about to become a grandchild, I mean, grandparent to their child is to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you have to figure it out yourself, but it, it, it sounds like you're criticizing yes. if you say anything. I think we could all do to learn some healthy languaging around how to interact with new parents or becoming parents, right? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a good way of putting it. Sarah, do you remember me talking with you and Ben about how the two of you were sharing a hormonal trajectory and that, you know, Ben was going to also experience 
the postpartum hormonal shift. Now, how it would manifest for him might be particular to his biochemistry and social, emotional, whatever, right? But that he indeed would himself be postpartum just the way he was pregnant with you. And I, when I taught uh, childbirth prep classes, I always, as well as the surviving the first six weeks classes, they so-called used to take families through this, like this has been studied. (laughs) It's not just a phenomenon that it's also biological. It's so biological. And again, this, and it's worldwide. I mean, it's just like, uh, it doesn't matter where you are, what language, what culture, what religion, whatever it is, is it's the same biology that's taking place mm-hmm. and, and, and has from the beginning that we know of. Um, <laughs> where it's going, I don't know, but um, pretty much this is primal basic biology. And again, it's out of our control. And that's the other thing that people love to do is control. There's <laughs> a power yeah. that's greater than us. So there's an upside about that. There's a theory that those of us who are in this moment and uh, are the result of um, the the people who came before us who did understand their adrenal cortex enough to run away from that lion that was coming at us. Yes. And so learning learning about our reaction to fear and responding in an appropriate way is what we have inherited. Sometimes mm-hmm. we think it's all depression and anxiety and it's all this mental illness is a bad, bad, you know, a thing. Uh, and we've inherited this, in, this evilness feeling. But it's in fact, we're, we are descendants of those who actually have survi- are survivors because they knew how to get out of the way of harm or luck too, a lot of luck. And but we are who we have involved to. Um, so, but you have to know how you are, and we don't. I mean, um, unless you're really intuitive and also, or been lucky enough to be in, th- in therapy, because if you've already gone down some of this road, you may have already tuned into that. Oh, that explains why I used to, you know, get stomach aches or all oh, my headaches. They mm-hmm. all used, came from that. And like, I'm talking about me. I had no clue that that <laughs> was all indicative of the fact that I had inherited, had an inherited this depression gene, which I did pass on. My, in particularly my to my daughters, and both of them have <clears throat> had the bouts of um, reoccurring depression. Luckily, not around pregnancy or birth. That that was the one thing that we were able to help because of, I think, my openness and, and the examples of what I uh, established and learned and passed around. And, um, and then I learned how to be supportive. And also their spouses were incredibly wonderful. And as wonderful as my husband tried to be, we were, we were like so dumb and so clueless. And there was the blind leading the blind is like, what's this baby doing? We had no idea. But the, you know, the next generation, our son and our daughters and their, uh, their experiences with, um, having their babies was just the opposite, you know, and the men yes. are nurturers as well and, ex- and want to be, and then the expectation is shifted. And I think that yay feminism, what we really <laughs> did was really bring that to an equal level. And as opposed to my poor husband is, and his, this generation, we're just like, okay, you got to come in here. You got to see this baby born. You know, you got her pregnant, you know, see her push it out. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, now you need to learn to diaper and you need to, it's like the, the guys go, what are you talking about? Yeah. They had no, they didn't have fathers who 
who participated. So why would they? They wanted to and they learned. Mm -hmm. But I think mm -hmm. that we really have um, gotten better at that. Not It's not perfect, but it's gotten a lot better. Just allowing men to be nurturers because they want to be. They do want to be, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's not, it's not fair to say you're going to be workers and soldiers. No. There are a lot of women who are listening to our show who are pregnant now, possibly for the first time. And it seems to me that we could paint a number of scenarios of possibilities um, because there isn't any kind of rule, right? Nope. Like right. just yeah. because your family had depression doesn't mean you're going to have depression. Nope. And vice versa. Particular. Yeah. Right. And someone who's never had that in their family, they could experience that. I'm curious to know more about the concept of your warm line. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because there isn't a phone number that's being flashed on TV. And if there's someone out there who thinks, oh, maybe I would like to have a resource on hand in case after I have my baby, I'm feeling like I could use some support on a practical note, like where, what would you advise those people? The most important thing is to figure this out during pregnancy. And the during your pregnancy time, um, there are three barriers. One's fear, one's decisions. And the, the um, changes that are taking place are their challenges during your pregnancy with your partner and your family. Sometimes we just don't talk about that. And generating resources during pregnancy is the critical time. And we all need them. And you don't wait for this. Um, there's just as much depression, depression and anxiety during pregnancy as there is postpartum. So, and for the men, the men that this statistic is holding true. And we can just say conservatively 10%. Uh, one in 10. So just look around your childbirth class, you know, and understand that there's, this is going to happen to somebody in the room. And even if it's not you, you're the resource for somebody else. So the, the, mm -hmm. there are some very, very nice, uh, simple um, things we can use in terms of self-help and resources within, um, learning that you're not alone, that you're not to blame, and this is temporary, and with help you'll get well and be fine. Those are really critical things to remember. Um, we call that the universal message. The fact that it will get better, that all these three things are true, does not mean that it's not important now to address them, right? Please do address them now. That's how they will get better. That's right. Not, they'll just go away. It doesn't just go um, away. No, no. And yeah. I think that's, and again, my example for myself is that I waited way too long. It's in my 50s before I got help. So no, you don't do that. So you, we don't have to do that. But sometimes denial and, uh, is a very powerful thing and you're not ready. So it's okay to be able to say, I need to focus on the baby now and this um, th that's, that's healthy too. It's just a just mm -hmm. know in the back of your brain at some point and these things come and go. You mean, absolutely remember if 10% of people don't do well, you know, how many 90% are fine. Uh, so remember that we're there. And that's why the warm line idea came uh, from um, if you're having a momentary crisis in the middle of the night and you just want to know that you should call your doctor because the baby hasn't stopped crying. That's an example where if you didn't know to be reassured by somebody else who'd been there, had been sleepless all night long, that you think you're weird or you, you might push you over the edge. So, you know, this is back to resources, um, knowing that it is normal to have needs during your pregnancy and postpartum and actually for life that need to be met um, with non-judging support. And that's emotional support 
that's just what we should do for each other to be in kind, caring, compassionate conversation with people. You know, that empathy, you know, I, I hear you um, and I understand that this is tough. And let me tell me, how, how was it last night? Did you sleep? I mean, you're pregnant. You're not sleeping at the end, right? And then you're caught up with how am I going to literally get through my labor? What's going to happen? All of these unknowns. Those are hard. And we just need to be able to set the greatest need for parents uh, is to talk. Mm -hmm. Talking is, is therapy. And why? Because we know that the biology of the brain needs that oxygen. You inhale and you exhale and you talk about how it felt. And if you can't find somebody to to talk to about how your pregnancy is going, how labor went, I think one of the most telling things is if you still need to talk about your labor, you need to talk about your labor. If you Mm -hmm. still need to talk about how hard it was to nurse or that you decided you, you, you know, the expectation of vaginal birth changed to cesarean, you need to talk about that experience. And then again, that's the warm line. The idea that this is normal to be able to sit and talk. Now, in our example in Santa Barbara, where we set up this PEP, and it's sustained itself for 40 years. We're celebrating 40 Mm -hmm. years of PEP this year. All volunteers, never a paid staff, no therapy. This is normal stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And and, uh, the beauty is we try to match somebody who calls the warm line, who says, I'm having... um, sore nipples, or I'm having uh, no desire to have sex with my husband, or uh, you, you name it, or mm-hmm. you know, I, I am, you know, if you pick, pick it, there's a volunteer who has said, I have that special circumstances, I'm happy to talk to somebody else who's going through it now. Mm-hmm. And that's back to the listening and the openness and the caring, um, and that you won't be judged. Because mm-hmm. sometimes when we all open up to somebody, we thought was a friend but they haven't gone through it or they did and they got over it or whatever it is they don't may not even mean to say it but they may be interpreted as being judgmental to the person who's in that moment and then it gets worse right yeah I'm thinking of um my daughter's dad had what I thought of as at the time as a very selfish and extreme reaction to the baby crying he would kind of lose his mind. And my only recourse at that time and the way I felt about it was I can only deal with one crying baby at a time. Right. I can only deal with one person who is inconsolable, emotionally speaking, at a time. And and I had to tell him at one day when he looked at me in a kind of anxious fury and said, Can't you do something about that? I had to say to him, you know, if you can't deal with this, you need to leave. And basically gave him permission to abandon us, Um, which I don't blame him. Like, he just couldn't tolerate it. And it's too bad. As far as I know, he had nowhere to go with that. And of course, it's a very good example of, we don't know what had traumatized him to set mm-hmm. him up for that sensitivity level of, uh, frankly, mm-hmm. it is, it's hell having mm-hmm. a child that creates. And why, why have, do we have to tolerate it 
and is so mean and why is and so we blame the baby i mean yeah. you know <laughs> um and then we blame ourselves oh i didn't mm-hmm. my milk isn't right and then the 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 man who's not biologically directly connected to having gone through the birth and, and delivery and such they're really out in left space out of space i mean they're left out completely and and depression gets you angry and people forget that anger is depression and very Mm -hmm. often we will lash out Uh, one of the statistics i'm sure still holds true as the uh more people are divorced in the first year after the birth of a baby than any other time uh, because this is so difficult and you really and why do we expect it to be easy i don't sure domestic violence and Mm -hmm. crimes against women but are just astronomically bad and so we know that then then more than women are are beaten during their pregnancies and of course just think what that impact is on the fetus and that's why Mm -hmm. this ongoing violence continues to perpetuate itself because we haven't Mm -hmm. dealt with that but it's really important to if only we could take one step back and look at this analytically Mm -hmm. which you can't when you're in the moment and my my equivalent to uh, the baby not crying was that my baby cried because he was hungry because I didn't have enough milk. And my mm. husband saying to me, you're starving our child. Mm. And yeah. I mean, I and I was. And uh, we, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. just horrible. But, you know, that was a shock to me mm-hmm. and we're, we we really didn't have a warm line we didn't have anything at all and somehow but and he there's all sorts of other things that were wrong the baby had an annual hernia he had to have surgery at four weeks i mean this is a you know the things that tumble out of the vagina right. basically <laughs> you had no clue yeah. that these things are going to be happening and then mm-hmm. things every time i was pregnant my husband lost his job mm. i mean that's <laughs> oh my not God. yeah that's not too yeah. cool you know, um, but we we persevered and you keep on pushing through. Um, I, I would want to interject one critical word, and that's communication. You mentioned trying to find the right language, how we speak to each other around this time. It's so imperfect. But I think that understanding how we trigger each other with certain words, and then we're so sleep deprived. Yeah. And it's a form of torture. And that's why we need doulas and friends and family to and sleep to help us get that sleep that we don't get. And that goes for everybody. I read a nice passage in a book called Parenting from Within, where a man shared a story about his own experience with trauma associated with crying. So whenever he heard a crying baby, he would he would get really stressed and upset. And of course, he eventually figured out it was back to something he'd experienced. He thought it was from his own childhood, but it was actually from his experiences working in a child ER. Oh. oh yeah. um, but it. But I like that you brought up this concept of triggers. If your husband or your partner or whoever's helping you gets really stressed and you're not stressed at all, maybe think about what they're reacting to. Are they really reacting to your situation at hand? Maybe not. And that kind of, I think, helps reframe one's own reaction Mm -hmm. to have compassion for that person and think, wow, they're reacting that way because they probably have some trauma. Mm -hmm. And in which case, case, it might just be the question, right? Like, it seems like you're really having a strong reaction. Why do you think that is? 
because I'm in the room with the baby, the baby's doing the same thing. I'm not having that reaction. I really want to understand why you might be having this reaction so we can help you with that. Yeah. yeah. And it, it does take a long time to figure that out and, and uh, mm-hmm. may not be immediate. And that's the other thing about processing. Processing mm-hmm. also happens um, differently and some people do it quickly and other people do it very, very slowly. And mm-hmm. that interferes with communication and that goes harkens back to my marriage because mm-hmm. you know we we really struggle still um, about communicating, and that's fifty years of trying, fifty years plus mm-hmm. trying. Um, it's it's a real art, mm-hmm. and we don't think alike. Uh, whether it's just male and female differences, or how we were raised. My husband comes from South Africa, so he had a different cultural experience, mm-hmm. um, and it's also about um, who did raise us. And how close were we to these various other people in our families? Oh, then there's siblings and other things that we throw <laughs> in there. But I, um, it is really so nice if we all communicated well. Again, I see, I see in my children that they communicate so much better with their spouses than I communicate with mine. And one of the best lines, my daughter, who's the one who's having their birthday today, she said to us, we were having an outing, a family vacation, and our daughter turned to us and said, I don't know which is worse, listening to my parents bicker or my children bicker. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm with her 100%. I think everybody I can, can relate. about three days of either, on either side. Yep. And, it's and like, then I'm done. Oh, and... We were so embarrassed because, of course, we know we do this, but, you know, we looked at each other and go, oh, no. And my daughter has no memory of having said this. That's the other funny part is that she said the most important thing and yet didn't realize it came out of her mouth. But it's really true. (laughs) Well, you know, that's a really insightful and an example from my, my mom. Uh, came to visit uh, only now and then when I had my children because she, frankly, as she would say, really not into babies. <laughs> she, she liked them when they could talk back and have arguments with her and debate and all that. So anyway, she she would visit and she'd come and she said, you know, Jane, I've noticed every time I come to visit, you have difficulty nursing. And it's tr- it suddenly dawned on me. She was stressing me out because I was trying to be the perfect daughter to show her that I was be- being a good mother. Like I thought she had been a good mother to me. And she finally picked up on she was stressing me out. And sure enough, I got my breast infections <laughs> when she came to visit. Wow. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Talk I about triggering. Yeah, but How? I didn't want her to leave. I didn't want her, I, yeah. you know, I wanted her around yeah, me. You wanted your mom. Well, and I wanted her to be more helpful. <laughs> <laughs> That's back to expectations. Yeah. Well, Jane, why don't you dive into the Postpartum Support International website? Well, with pleasure. Of course, when I started um, PSI, uh, it was 10 years after I had um, helped st- develop 
this what we call system of action for families mm-hmm. in Santa Barbara with PEP. And I got mm-hmm. exposed to the what we call the less, less, less than wonderful, the world of psychiatry um, related to childbearing in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And that led me to going to scientific meetings, um, trying to understand what is they, what are they talking about, psychiatric illness? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're just talking about normal adjusting to parenthood. And sure, there's depression, but what? So one thing led to another, and I ended up forming um, this, uh, you know, first we had a conference and brought people together who were already working in the field, mostly they were from Canada and England, and uh, that I knew, knew about. And then I realized people around the States needed to, to, to get organized too. So it became um, a, a clearinghouse out of my own home for 18 years, and this was way before there was internet, um, and we... I fielded calls from people from all around the world asking for resources in their own community and to try to understand what was going on. Um, Mm -hmm. And then fast forward to the time when we have the internet and can uh, go online and learn so much more and we can um, get educated more in a sophisticated way. Uh, So if you go to postpartum.net, yeah. Uh, you you know pulls up all sorts of things, but I'm very proud to say that PSI is is the the leader in the area. Um, but uh, it is international, and there's something in every country and every culture, some way somehow, um, to find yeah. help. And the the uh, the organization that's not mentioned enough is the scientific group that educated me. It's called the Marseille Society. And the Marseille Society was formed in the eight, 1980. I went to my first in England and I went to my first meeting in, in uh, the Oakland Hills uh, across from San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, 1984. And it was uh, as a result of a journalist who contacted me writing the first book on this topic. And it was called the New Mother Syndrome. Um, it became the classic. It is the classic. And that led me to integrate the science and the clinical and the research stuff that I was clueless about because, remember, I'm coming from the, the self-help side and then the practical self-help side and melding together through the Marseille Society, which meets every other year. I, I've been on their boards for all these decades and go to all their meetings. We were just in Australia last fall. We'll be in India in uh 2018 um, and this is bringing wow. bringing together the best of the best the people who know the most and the most and understand the history of the of all the movement how far we have come how far we still have to go mm-hmm. but the the psi piece is about social support and it, it's the simplest it's the most cost effective um, and it's the most neglected and it's the biggest gap there is and yet it's right at our fingertips. Uh, so, for example, what we have in Santa Barbara is unique. It's still never been replicated anywhere. Um, there are a lot of variations on the theme. There's a lot of wonderful, wonderful work going on around the world, bringing together the, the science and the, and the practical. Um, but we still have a long ways to go. But PSI mm-hmm. is still the leader. And if people are, wherever you're, living and you're listening to this, you need to know your own community's resources. And you shouldn't have to call long distance. You shouldn't have to go onto internet. You should be able to ask your own professionals, the caregivers in your lives, your families, how do I prepare for this big change that's going on in my life? And knowing that I may be susceptible to depression and anxiety, what's going to be there for me? Um, mm-hmm. Do that. Do that. And then again, it can be in any culture. So 
but with PSI, it certainly helps. And the language is correct on the website with PSI. That's mm-hmm. why I'd say go to that first. The caution I have for everybody is don't read too much. <laughs> and, you know, surround yourself with what makes sense for you and your family. You know, an area that we neglect to include is our faith community. Um, it's the largest community for most of us um, around the world. And we need to know who surrounds us in that spiritual sense. Some people feel it more than others, um, but it's good resources if it's non-judgmental. And mm-hmm. that's the critical piece. And if you feel comfortable, a lot of people, um, remember 90% of the pop- world's population just gets on with it. Uh, and that is normal stuff, but there's tough stuff. And no matter what, you want to know that you're not alone if your child has colic. If your baby it, it has a learning disability, if you have had, you know, a, um, a car accident and something happens, you know, these things can happen. Our lives get turned upside down on a dime and a split second things can change. And so you have to know who's surrounding you. It's that that sense of security around yourself um, and your family and surrounding yourself with people. Again, critical words, non-judging people who are going to love you in, unconditionally and can, you can communicate well with. The word postpartum for a lot of people just means depression. Yes, I'm going to take responsibility for that. I, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I own it. Dang. And I really, it's, it, it's very upsetting because mm-hmm. everybody needs to know that when we pick the word postpartum education for parents, those three words for our organization in the 70s, we use the word postpartum as the adjective that describes having given birth the year after mm-hmm. delivery through adoption or uh, otherwise. Um, and that's all it is. It's an adjective. Mm-hmm. It's, desc- it's descriptive. And the other piece of that is that it worries me that we still have people saying, but I'm not postpartum. They're holding their baby and they say, I'm not postpartum. <laughs> and that the, what they mean to say is, I'm not depressed. Mm-hmm. Right, and the fact that there's you know, even have, we're having to say it, you know, I'm proud that we're at least talking about it, but I'm embarrassed mm-hmm. of the fact that it's been misconstrued, and I would give anything if we could correct our language. In in, in, in the rest of the world, they were saying postnatal before we coined postpartum um, in, mm-hmm. in, for uh, our organization, and that's why we really wanted to say after birth. Yeah, but that sounded like the word placenta, so we didn't want to use. <laughs> that and so you know so complicated it's complicated and it's well and that brings up the point of language again and and how to communicate exactly what's going on and so that's well and I think that there's a simple intervention and that's just that those of us who understand the distinction can simply address it whenever it comes up yeah. And the other is that right. why am I and still you add on right. the term right. depression right. if it's applicable. Right. And when you use the word postpartum, you're simply referencing that you had a baby. Exactly. And then and the other thing is in the clinical world, um, if you're not feeling like yourself, the first thing that needs to be ascertained is, well, when did it start? Mm-hmm. Because if I have a three year old, I'm still not feeling myself. It's one of the most important um, uh, tease away the, the, the layers here. So when did you start feeling? So they said, well, actually, I, I, when I was pregnant, I really noticed a change in myself and I haven't been the same since. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Or it could have been uh, where the baby had to go be, be hospitalized and that, that would turn me on, you know. It it just needs to be explained. And I think that that's really back to language and helping us figure that out. And just because there isn't a depression element doesn't mean someone doesn't need support either. Well, yeah. I, I can't emphasize that's- that enough. I mean, that's... <laughs> Good one, Sarah. You're absolutely right. Of course. And why don't you talk to us a little bit about what staying resourced through this first year has meant for you and Ben? The big difference for me was being able to anticipate things before they happened, which made me feel reassured and secure. And the reassurance that what I was doing was fine. I think because there's a lot of self-doubt as a first-time parent, oh, am I doing this the right way? Am I doing that the wrong way? I mean, just stuff as simple as what should I expect with my baby sleeping? Is it okay that she's sleeping next to me in my bed? Is it okay that she's, I mean, just everything. How much is she peeing and poop, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sarah, and let's remind our listeners and Jane that when you met me prenatally, you were looking for a birth doula. Yeah, that was it. I didn't know what a postpartum doula was. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people still don't. I think they Mm -hmm. think postpartum means depression. And doula just is not necessary because you're going to the hospital. And the people who care for us uh, after the baby is born is, of course, us, the mother, by ourselves, being pioneer women, toughing (laughs) it out. Uh, You know, just (laughs) there's so many there's so many images out there, especially on Instagram. You know, there's body stuff. There's there, there are all kinds of expectations that I think are really unfair and misinforming. And I love that, you know, here we are in 2017, we just in January, end of January, experienced the largest global women's march <laughs> in the world. And and the main message there is about defense, defending feminism, defending equality, defending the rights that we've gained so far. because Defending think, re- reproductive rights, which we mm-hmm. talked about with Kimberly Seals Allers. You know, breastfeeding is a reproductive right, and we don't even talk about it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think just going back to your question, like being supported was something that I stumbled upon. I was looking for someone to assist me in my birth scenario because I knew that I wanted someone in addition to my husband present. Um, so hiring a professional was a, a good answer for me. And thank goodness I did because it changed my entire postpartum experience. There's a deep desire to be taken care of as a new mom. There just is. It's there. And maybe we would admit it or maybe we are in denial. Or feel shame. Would say, or feel shame like, oh, no, I should be able to do this. But, but actually, if you admit to yourself, if you're vulnerable enough to go ahead and say, you know, I, I would really love someone to nurture me and take care of me. It may not be your mom, but you kind of need that mommy love. As an adult, you've just done something so hard and miraculous and you're, you have so many needs, physical and emotional and practical all at the same time that having someone or having support around you that helps kind of fill those needs, um, it, it just makes the experience a very positive one. So you've hit on a couple of things I want to emphasize. Um, working from what Sarah just described is actually the name of the book that is another classic that influenced me uh, from the anthropological point of view. The mm. woman um, described Dana Raphael called mm-hmm. Mothering the Mother. And mm-hmm. Mothering the Mother is the essence of survival of the species. 
And the reason we forget that it's, it's critical is that we have forgotten that birth often meant life or death and that without lactation, the baby died. And so the only way cultures could continue was to make sure the mother survived and could lactate. And the only way to do that was to make sure there were taboos and rituals and traditions in place. So if you look at this from the cultural anthropological background that we now have analyzed, you know, it was all just taken for granted. (laughs) This is what you, Sarah, just described. It's critical. I think it's sad that we have lost touch with that. It should not be something we have to pay for. The professionalism aspect is modern. Um, The idea that cultures around the world that are still, quote-unquote, intact, take it for granted that this is what happens, that the woman is birth only surrounded by women, and and that they're assured that they will be fed. And and then this is back to um, incentives with food around certain kinds of food. The understanding of hot and cold in some cultures still prevails, um, that the woman can't lift a finger and do anything for, you know, three months, um, one month, whatever it may be. But these things are ancient. And why we let go of it, we need to, you know, assess and realize we shouldn't have. But we we need to accept that it cannot be done alone. And we need to talk about it. That's back to the expectation. And and that's back to understanding one of the calls I got on the warm line through PSI years ago was from a woman um, who had been born in China, become an American citizen, was having her baby in America. But her mother was coming from China to take care of her and them. Mm -hmm. And the, the new mommy said, but I want to wash my hair. And I'm, and I'm sick of eating chicken. Her mother is coming from the culture in which she gave given birth. That's yeah. the ritual of, of, of surrounding that. So it's really back to, you know, understanding and having talked about this and not hurting people's feelings because you really don't want to do it that way. You want to do it this way. And this is my baby and this is the way I'm going to do it. And, you know, stay out of it because I've got to figure this out myself. So it's a very delicate line that you walk. Um, as family, unless the families are already so intact and so communicative. And you find that there are many families that have this all figured out and don't understand what we're talking about right now, because it's like not even an issue. And one other thing, Esther, I wanted to bring up, um, you cannot see depression and uh, you cannot tell by looking is an expression. Uh, it's actually mm-hmm. a campaign. You cannot tell. Just ask. And even that's not And good you enough. and I are testament to that because no one ever asked me. No. And I was very, oh, and I was very good and still can be very, very good at masking it. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and my depression still comes and goes. And so I think this is an important thing. This is, can be acute or it can be chronic and it just needs mm-hmm. to be open and honest. And I, I frankly, right now I find uh, one of my best therapies is ice skating. And one of the girlfriends, well, and she said, Jane, you're doing that because it's therapeutic, isn't it? And I go, yes, because it's quiet. It's routine. It's soothing. It's cold. It's, it's everything 
it's everything that I need for my body. And so people need to find what it is that's good for them for, to get away. And I was going to, maybe if we have time, I'd like to take people through what I call steps to wellness and making sure, Perfect. Pe- pe- making sure that everybody understands that there's, you know, it's so logical here. And, and I want people to, if you, if you have pencil and paper and you're listening, can write things down. The steps to wellness um, are common sense. But the first one is sleep. And doesn't matter how old you are or what, what, where you come from, are you male, female, big or small, tall? How many babies you doesn't have? Doesn't matter. If you can't sleep, it's an issue. Okay, so sleep is critical to good health. The second one is appetite and nutrition. And if you can't eat well, because you, then this is where depression kicks in or, or, or reveals. You ask yourself, what have I eaten? How am I eating? Do I want to eat? Am I eating the right things? This is goes to your children. I mean, this is something that we live with forever. So sleeping well and eating well. And the next one is exercising. Because it doesn't mean going to the gym. I mean, have you gotten out of the house today? Have you yeah. walking, walked around the block? Have you done more than just climb the walls of your house? <laughs> You know, and children, I mean, it's the same thing. And, and t- kids, we say they're having a meltdown. It's like, well, did they sleep well? When did they nap? Have they eaten well? When did they let's have their, their uh, feed? And, and uh, have they had a chance to breathe the fresh air? And that's really critical to health. And the, those three words are very biological. Because if we, we, we frame them in the sense of this is how you stay healthy, this is what everybody's told, Right. And we forget as new parents how completely and utterly this shifts for multitudes of reasons, all right? But then the other part to exercise is the words time for myself. And this Mm -hmm. is particular to parenthood. But sometimes it could be for a child too who is having a quote-unquote meltdown and they haven't had their nap and and they need to be left alone. So we also sometimes need to pause and think about that. For the parents, it could be a night out, right? But have I had time to even wash my face this morning kind of time? So Mm -hmm. it's about putting those three words together and then assessing, well, yeah, I just had a baby. Of course, I'm not sleeping. Uh, I'm nursing. And of course, I have to eat well, because if I don't, the baby, I don't have milk, whatever. You can see how these, these simple words can change everything and help you assess how are you doing? Um, and, and where do I need more help? Um, do I need more sleep? Does that mean somebody else should be coming in and waking, wake, when the baby wakes, let me sleep? You need to work that out. Um, does it mean that somebody should be bringing me, bringing me the chicken soup? You need to figure that out. Um, and the other p- parts of steps to wellness, the ones that come next are not the biological ones, but the psychological ones, the ones that, you know, getting emotional support and that's just the question do I have anybody that I can trust and I can tell how I'm feeling am I getting emotional support and that's the next step in in being well and when Mm -hmm. you say I'm having a bad day to your girlfriend or to your husband or to your child you say mommy doesn't you know mommy's having a bad day is actually very healthy it's critical (laughs) to good health and the, the the response should not be but you, you, you got everything. Why do you mm-hmm. need more emotional support? What are you talking about? That's judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the other piece after emotional support, the, the hard mm-hmm. part there is asking for help. 
um, and when you're depressed, and that's another sign of depression, is often when you're so, you get to this place, you do not know what you need. Um, you're so needy, but you don't know what to do. And my husband finally, after all these years, realizes I needed a hug. Don't mm-hmm. try to fix it. Mm-hmm. Don't look for yeah. the solution. I just, right in the, I'm in the moment. Just be there. Just don't leave the room. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's as simple as that. But the follow-on to emotional support and how you just phrase that is that practical support. We've ref- mentioned this about the role of the person who comes in, whether it's a family or a doula or whatever we call a person, um, to mother the mother. But we all need practical help. And as we age, see, I'm in that generation that we need household help because we no longer want to do all the dusting and the cleaning of the toilets. So, you know, that's important all our lives. And then the mm-hmm. last word is after you've assessed and looked back at how you're doing with these words of wellness, do you need professional help? And that's referrals. So that's yeah. when you need to be able to, with the help of somebody else, and if, if people are listening and have written this down, that they share this with the person who's closest to them, um, whether it's their mother or their friend or their spouse or partner, it doesn't matter, but you have to say, you know, now this is so practical. It is common sense. And yet we let go. And then we say, you know, I have, I've neglected seeing my therapist or I've was told I should get off my medication. I think it's time that I reassess that. So this really helps. And it's very simple. So it's in a book I wrote called I'm Listening. And that book is I'm Listening and the Steps to Wellness are, um, I elaborate more. They're in there. And they're all on my website. You can go to my, go to my website and you can go to amazon.com and you can find all this stuff that I've written all down. And it's simple common sense. It's no, it's like I say, it's, but we've seemed to have lost touch with a lot of that. We will make sure to include links to all of that on our website as well, which is fourthtrimesterpodcast.com. Jane, thanks so much for coming today uh, to our podcast. And it was really fun. Oh, my my pleasure. And it was fun for me. (laughs) You can find out more about Esther Gallagher on estergallagher.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband, Ben, daughter, Penelope, and baby girl, Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now. Hello again, bicycle man. I know you're doing all that you can. I wrote the song, simple and true. I wrote the song, I'll sing a song for you. You got your wheels, you got your gears. You ride around town without any fear. You got your pedals, you got your brakes. You always wear your helmet for safety's sake